Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Using technology to scale the impact of experts. So we talk about the demand for mental health treatment. You know, 50 to 60 million Americans that are that are that experience some kind of mental illness. Now let's look at the supply side. In the United States, there are anywhere between 150,000 to 200,000 clinicians who can do what Karen does. So it doesn't take an Einstein to figure out the math. You got 50 million people in demand of some kind of mental health help. And you got 150,000 people who can help. There's no freaking way that we can solve this social pandemic of mental health crisis by continuing to rely on the one-on-one model, which is, of course, very important, and it will continue to serve a very important role, but we got to boldly innovate. All right, Look Up listeners, welcome back to another episode of the Look Up podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. As always, thank you for listening, supporting the show, sharing with your friends, and reaching out to me with questions, comments, and guest recommendations. I appreciate all of you and just excited to continue this journey with you all. It is today, November 23rd, a Monday, 2020. I am here live in Los Angeles um, with COVID-19. At least I tested positive for COVID-19 and uh, it's been quite an experience over the last couple of days, but still want to continue to bring you uh, these episodes in a timely fashion. It's important guests and content. Maybe I'll do an episode on on this experience, but all good. Health is okay. Uh, Feeling good for now and we'll keep you updated. But this episode is about a different health pandemic uh, that is sweeping the world and particularly focused on the United States as an epidemic, and that's the mental health crisis uh, in the United States. Currently, one in four Americans uh, report being clinically depressed. Uh, We have a rise in the rate of teenage suicides, specifically amongst Uh, teenage girls. It's record rates in our history as a country. We have and are experiencing record rates um, and cases of mental health issues amongst our children at increasingly younger ages. And it's at the point now where there are, as uh, Paul mentions previously, my guest today, that there are 50 million Americans suffering and we have you know, only hundreds of thousands of clinicians uh, who are able to uh, treat uh, these cases. And in this episode, I speak to my friend of uh, 10 years now, Paul Chen. Paul is the founder of a company called uh, Flourish Tech. Uh, Paul was born in Chengdu, China. He immigrated to Norfolk, Virginia as a teenager he was previously my coworker at Jefferies. He's held other roles at technology companies like Alibaba, 
He went to study business at uh, Harvard, where he got his MBA. And he is also a team member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, He was nominated by the former Secretary of State, Dr. Condoleezza Rice, which is pretty cool. Um, But Paul has decided to dedicate his life to solving the depression and mental health crisis in America with his company, Flourish. We also had Dr. Karen Ye on Uh, She is a PsyD, a clinical psychologist with nearly 20 years of experience. And in her practice, she's seen the power of empathy work for many individuals with relationship problems. She trained under Dr. David Burns, a Stanford psychiatrist and bestselling author of Feeling Good, a new mood therapy to specialize in his cognitive self-help approach to mental health. She established her own center in Fremont, California in 2014 to train other therapists in this practice. And she has been working with Flourish to develop their programming to help scale empathy. And we talk about how we got to to where we are today with this mental health crisis in America. Um, We wonder why so many Americans are suffering from depression. We ask if the rate of anxiety and stress has anything to do with the acceleration of technology use? And what are some uh, common misconceptions around mental health that are helping to perpetuate and stigmatize uh, mental health issues in America? And finally, we close with whether technology can be refitted as a tool to help us as individuals in society thrive mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I and Paul and Karen believe that it can. And in this episode, we kind of start to brush on that. But in the next episode, which is the second part of this conversation, you'll be able to hear more from Karen and Paul as to how Flourish is going about solving this problem in terms of training each one of us to have the right tools of empathy to deal with uh, our relationships in a more healthy way. So without further interruption from me, I hope that you really enjoy this episode. Uh, There's a lot of great information in here. If you or your loved one are suffering from depression or anxiety, uh, I think that one of the most important things here is to know that you are not alone. Uh, Many of us are suffering from from all sorts of mental health issues. Uh, These are challenging times and the isolation does not help. Please reach out to your friends, your loved ones, uh, or to a therapist or expert in this field. And if a loved one is suffering, definitely check out Flourish uh, to learn how it can help you. All right. Thanks. All right. So Paul and Karen, thank you so much for coming on the Look Up podcast. How are you today? We're great. Thank you. Yeah, Mara, thanks. I know, you know, we win, we go way back. So it's a pleasure to reconnect in, in this, in this forum and be on your podcast. It's, it's, it's very exciting. What is it? It's, I think it's like 11 years now, Paul, since we've known each other. <laughs> oh man. It's <This> yeah. crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I haven't, I haven't grown up at all. And you're a father now. You're like, <laughs> we're, I'm, I'm still like, feel like that college kid. Um, <laughs> trying to figure it all out. Maybe Karen can help me on this episode. We'll see. <laughs> um, but I guess, I, you know, I, obviously we're going to talk about Flourish, but I wanted to start with, um, I guess it's, it's a pretty serious topic. You know, we have, we have a mental health crisis uh, in America. Um, 
would love if you could explain to the listeners kind of where we are in this moment in time in regards to that, that mental health crisis, as some are calling it. Yeah, thank you, Mark. And, and of course, Karen has been a frontline trooper in helping people be well mentally, emotionally. So Karen will speak to kind of just from her practitioner's perspective, from my perspective, founding this company that's trying to enhance people's emotional and mental fitness. I was motivated by my own story, which we can go in a little bit, but uh, you know, even before COVID, uh, we are in kind of a trouble. Um, based on where you look up the st- statistic, we have anywhere between 50 to 70 million Americans that have experienced some kind of clinical depression last year. Staggering. I mean, the, num- the absolute numbers are, are huge. So yeah. there's 320 million Americans. Let's say you take the average of, of 60 so you're looking at every, for every five people you know, including yourself, so maybe four people around you, it's likely that you or one of the other four are clinically depressed. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, Mark, um, well. I guess this statistic would remain a statistic until one of my friends from business school committed suicide four mm-hmm. years after graduating from GSB. I mean, this guy had everything that one could look for. Um, worked at Goldman Sachs, you know, got his MBA at Stanford and had a you know very attractive job. And when he was at GSB, he was also very friendly and just very kind, great guy, invited to every most popular party um, there was at GSB. But yeah, you know, he ended his life tragically. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, this 50 to 70 million number is, is not a statistic to me. You know, it really hit home. Hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. And I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I think uh, many of us have stories like this that, you know, I'm sure listeners can resonate. Someone who's, who's close, close to them or who they've, come into contact with over time that seemed, you know, normal, quote unquote, that's probably not even an appropriate word to use, but like who seemed healthy and happy and we just don't know, right? It's kind of like this silent, um, silent crisis uh, until, until that event happens. And so, I mean, I guess I want to ask like, how did we get here? Yeah, Karen, you, you have a longer perspective. <laughs> Paul, you're passing the tough ones off to Karen. <laughs> I, I think there's so many factors. I mean, when you look at it, um, you know, you, you, you work the numbers correctly. It's, it's actually about one in four adults, um, you know, have experienced or struggle with um, a mental health disorder. Um, and, and really most commonly it's like depression and anxiety. And for children uh, and adolescents, it's one in five. Um, so the numbers really are staggering. You know, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a pretty uh, certain chance that you know somebody who's struggling with this, if not you know yourself at some point in time. Um, you know, if we're looking at um, the you know most recent decades, you know we see certainly that um, the stresses 
of modern life um, and technology, even as much uh, as they have benefits um, and make our lives easier, uh, they also make our lives harder. Um, in fact, uh, you know, there have been a number of studies done to show how technology actually contributes to um, more struggles, um, more, more difficulty, more pain, um, especially for adolescents. You know, so although on the one hand, technology overall makes our lives simpler, um, it just the very presence on social media um, can make somebody depressed. Uh, so, um, and then here, um, well, Paul used to be in the Bay Area, but I'm still in the Bay Area. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's, there's a lot of stresses associated with the job um, that just translate, they, they're carried home. Um, and then it's within the family um, and kids, you know, more and more often too, are carrying stress of academics, um, of families just trying to do the right thing for their children. Um, and it has been in the last 20 years that we see um, anxiety diagnosed in children who are younger and younger. It's, it's, uh, it's palpable. And there's a lot that, you know, I'd like to touch on um, from what you just shared, Karen. I mean, certainly as an individual, I've, I've struggled with, um, with anxiety and bouts of depression as well. And, you know, people very close to me, um, you know, taking, taking benzos and, and, you know, to, to level themselves out. And I, uh, it's, it's definitely a subject that is, is super, super important. Um, there's well, a correlation. Yeah, so possibly of course. If I, if I add, add, add something to what Karen was saying, in terms of just like, I guess the mega trends that have taken us where we are, uh, it's a subject that I've personally reflected quite a bit. And of course, you know, smart people disagree on, on this. Uh, one thing that perhaps is worth kind of paying attention is just this, um, I guess, shifting preference to prioritize individual desires over traditional social constructs, hmm. whether they are religious communities, families, you know, millennials are, you know, getting married later, right? And they're having children later too. And, and um, so, like, you know, historically these social bonds that have kind of provided the relationships that kind of help us go through life are, are changing and, and, and evolving. It's anybody's guess what the, I guess, quote unquote, new church looks like uh, in the 21st century, particularly for millennials and a younger generation. And if we look at how, what technology has been doing for the past 20 to 25 years, they're not designed to bring people together to say the very least, uh, without naming names, uh, you know, obviously social media thrives on dividing people because that's what gets you that increases engagement and that's good for advertising monetization model. So that makes a lot of sense to produce contents that are outrageous and that, inflame, that are inflammatory, that are divisive. And for perhaps less more innocent looking technologies such as you know, food delivery, it is further encouraging people to basically eat alone, right? Or at least eat in a smaller kind of a social unit than, you know, if you were to go out at a restaurant. So, you know, all these, I mean, obviously now COVID uh, is changing all mm. that. 
nevertheless, even before COVID, you know, a lot of these technologies are really designed to kind of maximize individual convenience, individual preferences. Um, and, and I think there's some serious implications uh, from that. Yeah, I want to um, I want to I want to touch on that because I've definitely spent my a fair share of time on this show speaking about kind of the the negative externalities of of this social media revolution, and you both have touched on technology as um, as a driver for this. Certainly, you know the the correlation uh, in terms of the the increase in number of of instances of anxiety and depression in our country and and globally. Uh, with the the rise of ubiquitous use of of cell phones and um, social media apps is clear. I guess um, have have there been studies that have proven uh, causation as yet, or is that still an open question? And then following on that, um, you know, Karen, because you mentioned you mentioned children and um, at a younger and younger age experiencing anxiety, uh, and then of course adults are already experiencing this. And my question is kind of, is that, is that, is that in your opinion related to kind of social behavior on these apps or is it just, you know, is it just the isolation or possibly some combination, you know, is it, is it cyber bullying or something else? Mm-hmm. A lot there, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, there is. Um, and maybe to address uh, the first the first point or the first question you had is, yes, um, there are studies. Um, uh, so University of Michigan had a study showing Facebook use um, led to decreased happiness and decreased life satisfaction. Um, and Paul, feel free to, to jump in if you have um, you know, more details on these studies. Um, and uh, in Australia, there were two studies. Um, showing heavy use, uh, heavy internet use in adolescence did lead to poor um, mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I think Duke, uh, Duke University also um, had a study showing higher technology use in adolescence um, led to more conduct problems and ADHD. Um, so there have been a variety, uh, a, a range of studies um, looking at, at these factors. Um, so we do see something um, there. As far as like uh, seeing anxiety in younger children, um, that may not even necessarily be um, because this was something that we were seeing before, um, before like apps and, and cell phones, um, you know, that were in heavy usage with the younger group. So, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of that was translating from um, parents actually feeling more anxiety and affecting um, their uh, relationships and their ability to parent. Um, and, and we do know that, you know, for children, um, one of the best ways they learn is also to model. Um, so they're, they're seeing how their parents are and, um, you know, how whatever behavior is, is happening in the home or how the relationship is, is being affected. Um, we're, we were seeing reports and, and parents calling in of um, children who were suffering from uh, just generalized anxiety, uh, let alone like um, also like more specifically OCD, uh, phobias, um, and such. Is, do you, in, in your opinion, is this due to kind of parents bringing their work home with them 
at this point and kind of a lack of separation between even prior to COVID, of course, like now everybody works for, or if you are able to and lucky enough, you work from home. But, um, you know, in your opinion, is it because parents are coming back from work and bringing their, their work home with them rather than leaving at the office? Um, you know, that's difficult to say because I don't know that any studies have actually looked at <laughs> um, yeah, what the parents are doing. But, um, you know, that it, it's a good guess. And it, at least let's say that whatever they're doing and, and whatever stress that parents may be uh, experiencing um, outside the family, um, that it affects their interaction with their children, whether it takes them away um, from like quality time spent with their children or um, it may affect their mood. Um, it may kind of <clears throat> create a shorter fuse. So you'll see more outs- outbursts, uh, outbursts of um, frustration or anger. Um, it can affect the marital relationship, which then affects the children because it takes away from, let's say, their sense of safety or security. Um, it can affect the stability, uh, emotional stability, and even physical stability um, of what the children uh, are experiencing so yeah there can be a lot of a lot of effects yeah man Karen, this is very convicting because the anxiety that my wife and i share due to our various circumstances um yeah affects our relationship with with our with our son um and, and by the way mark i guess this is in one of the another kind of trends that we're beginning to address which is I think for kind of ambitious millennial or Gen Z couples, um, both people are working. So my wife is like crushing it. She's she's one of the marketing executives at one of the world's top blockchain companies. She's managing a team of 30 people. So she's extremely busy. Here I am trying to kick off a Silicon Valley venture-backed startup <laughs> and that has demands. And um you know, really finding that balance between work and life is 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 um it's a daily it's a daily struggle, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, I mean ooh, sorry, go ahead, Karen. Sorry, I was just gonna say and 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 just to to add on to that that parents are doing the best that they can, you know, so they themselves are running a treadmill. Um so so it's totally. hard. And right, and we're and we're not just even talking about um uh the effect um, that that hard work has on them. But it's just, when I talk about interaction, um, parents might be doing the best that they can. Let's say you have a teenager who's um, not doing well at school and so, or or for whatever kind of um, malfeasant behavior. And so, you know, sometimes parents will just say, okay, you're grounded, you know, Um, Mm. but then they get busy and there might not be any follow through in the grounding, like I'm going to take away your cell phone, but then the cell phone's not taken away. And believe it or not, that actually affects the sense of security of kids. Because if they're grounded, as much as they don't want to be grounded, follow through is so important because follow through says, I care. You know, I'm there. I I grounded you and I, I meant it, you know, and it provides that kind of safe containment. Um, and I've had, I've had teenagers tell me like, if she would, if she grounded me, that's fine. I hate it, but she really needs to ground me because it mm-hmm. translates to, 
you know, she didn't care or she got busy or she forgot me, you know? So, um, I, but I do believe that, that parents are doing the best they can. It's just, you know, the candles being burned on both ends. Totally. And I, I see that with my, um, with my sister and her husband, Brian, you know, they have, they have two young kids. They have, um, Alexis who is seven years old and Mikey who's three years old. And, you know, it's, uh, they're both working. Right. And I, I had the privilege of spending the last two weeks with them, um, or two weeks earlier this month. And like, I just love getting to spend time with my niece and nephew, but man, it's exhausting. You know, and I run around with them and as the uncle, I get to pop in and then I'm like, all right, hand them back off to the parents. Like I'm going to step out of here. And I just, I just don't, you know, even as just a millennial man, unmarried, you know, I find there's overwhelm all the time about where I, what I prioritize, like family, friends, fitness, diet, spiritual health, mental health. And then of course, the big, the big one for me and for many is work as we're discussing. Um, and uh, so on point, Karen, with, the, with your example about kind of the example we set for our children. And I think about myself, you know, playing in, in two hours of, you know, playtime with the kids, how many times do I take out my phone, right. you know, to answer a message or an email. And then when they want the iPad, I'm like, no, 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 you can't look at the iPad. But they're like, but wait a second, you spend how many hours looking at this phone when we're hanging out? You know, no, you can't watch Netflix, but that's how mom and dad unwind. That's how Uncle Mark unwinds, you know? And, and so it's like, all right, yeah, we want to watch Netflix. And it's just, it feels like such an, you know, I just feel for parents because it feels like such an uphill battle to like take care of all the things. Um. Yeah. Well, I, you know, go ahead, Paul. I, maybe I, maybe I, I I'll, I'll share with the audience a confession of parental negligence. So today I was working <laughs> on our back porch uh, and uh, I put my son in our backyard. You know, he needs some nature time. And I got a little absorbed in emailing with a potential CTO candidate. And then uh, after a couple of minutes, I check on my son and he has some dirt in his mouth. So apparently he consumed God knows how much dirt. So uh, I'll let you know. Microbiome. <laughs> That's a hundred percent organic. That's how we do it. Yeah, exactly. Don't go to Whole Foods where they rip you off. Just go to your backyard, grab some. <laughs> so I, I have, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about where we are, which is kind of like one in four adults experiencing some kind of mental health issue, anxiety, depression, um, one in five children, younger and younger. We've talked a little bit about technology. I, I think it's, you know, Paul, you also mentioned something super fascinating, which, which is kind of this, like the millennial, the millennial, the death of religion, let's call it among millennials um, in, in the West in particular, kind of like those institutions that keep, keep us believing in something grander than ourselves. And I think that, destruction of those institutions over time and lack of faith in them um, has certainly contributed because I feel like humans need higher meaning to, to kind of experience life fully. Um, And then there's also like this economic backdrop, which is, you know, our generation looks at our parents and says, for the most part, I might not, my life might not be better than my parents. And you know, that kind of like 
escalator mentality of the American dream of like, I will do better than my parents. You know, they, they help me get to college. They help take care of me and I'll provide that for my child. Like even the same level because wages are not keeping up with asset prices. And it's hard to live when you're paying for health insurance, car, auto, you know, car, home, uh, food, which is crazy expensive. So even just like, I feel like oftentimes that I'm just treading water, you know, let alone kind of looking forward towards that improvement. And I feel that that is a prevalent sensation um, amongst the ambitious Gen Z's and millennials that you mentioned, couples that are both working and not necessarily earning kids that are 30 plus living with their parents. So there's all of these like social, cultural, economic, and technological trends that are contributing to this moment in time. And here we are. Um, that leads me to a question. <laughs> this, reminds so, okay, me of, uh, this reminds me of our Jeffrey's days where uh, I know. <laughs> at 12 o'clock in the morning, we got a pitch deck to do, but uh, Mark and I would philosophize about <laughs> random things. And uh, of course, the we'd other find- analysts would just roll their eyes and be like, what the hell are these guys talking about? Anyway. We'd find ourselves just like 3 a.m., like loopy, can't look at Excel model anymore. Like, let's talk about religion. Let's talk about like, something that's more, that's more interesting than, you know, this M&A deal. Um, and I actually want to touch on, on some cultural things as well, Paul, because we've, we've spoken about, about that this as well. So I'm going to, I'm going to bookmark that um, for after. But the question that I wanted to ask is, okay, like for listeners who have listened to this show, they understand kind of technology and how it's impacting our mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, I've touched on the economic stuff. I don't, you know, they, I think they see where we are. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the reason why I wanted to chat with you both is because it's where do we go from here? Mm-hmm. How do we make this better? Or can we make this better? Mm-hmm. Well, it would be a crime for, for me to say we can make it better as a Silicon Valley founder. Uh, you know, it's, it's our, in our blood to be optimistic. And in this case, I don't think it's naive to say things can be better. But it ain't going to happen if you and I don't do anything about it. So, so yeah, mm. it's both kind of a tough message, but also hopefully, you know, hopeful message. And just like how technologies have covertly or overtly prioritized kind of individual preferences, even to the detriment of social bonding, there's an opportunity for technologies to also reverse that. And based on things that have popped out in you know, popular culture, uh, including just you know, general backlash against what the impact of overconsumption of, whether it's iPhone or social media, it feels like people are open to an alternative purpose that technology can do. And at Flourish, Karen and I and our team are working very hard to make technology work for us, to make technology advance human flourishing. And in fact, Karen has a whole center devoted to whole earth, so uh, whole health. So perhaps Karen, you can speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, um, I think, you know, driving force for me is knowing that, you know, I love the work that I do, 
but um, as as psychologists or therapists, um, we're not, you know, it's it's not a rock star model. We can't reach 10,000 people at one go. Um, we're just working with the person that's in front of us or the couple that's in front of us or the family. So, you know, it's one by one, basically. Um, the center that I have um, in the in the San Francisco Bay Area um, allows me to do some training. So I train other therapists um, in uh, a, a style of therapy that I firmly believe in that we see has been effective. Um, and that allows me indirectly to reach more people. Um, and so then uh, getting connected with Paul made a lot of sense because it's about reaching more people with what we do. Um, we uh, ethically and, and uh, you know, aspire to um, serve our patients and then serve the public, uh, to serve the profession of psychology. Um, and this was, you know, right down the line is how do we, how do we um, ethically provide a, a standard of care if we want to reach more people? How do we do this? And I really like the balance of what Paul has created. Um, but for me, that's really important is that, you know, there are people who are willing to, um, whether they're aware of the stigma uh, or not, you know, they're willing to come into the office and get help. Um, there are other people who are not aware or who can't overcome the stigma of mental health and kind of keep it to themselves. Or maybe it's a family culture, um, you know, that this isn't something that you seek help outside the family, you know, if you're feeling depressed or anxious. Uh, and so, um, you know, there, there's a segment of the population that we may never be able to reach um, as professionals. So, you know, if we can harness uh, anything, <laughs> let alone technology, to reach those people, um, you know, that's an advancement. You know, that's where we can maybe make a difference in the numbers that we see that we were talking about at the beginning of the program. Um, something my center does, and, and I encourage the therapists who train there is, you know, to do pro bono work. Um, to get out there and go to the local libraries and serve the community to do um, mental health panels and ask questions. And it's unbelievable, you know, the people that will come and have questions and really warm up um, in the sessions. Um, so, you know, question and answer, they have tons of questions, um, you know, so much that they want to learn and so much that we can clarify for them. Um, so we see the need and, and the need is there. But, you know, mental health is very easily invisible as well. There, there are two things that I want to build on top of what Karen shared. A key word that Karen mentioned is stigma. No. Um, and two is scaling impact of what mm -hmm. Karen and her colleagues do to bring more positive change. So sticking on the topic of stigma. Now, this might be counterintuitive. Actually, as a business person, I love stigmatized industries. Why? Because that means most people don't dare to touch it. But if there is actually fundamental reason for why changes need to happen, and if you are there enough to get into some of these stigmatized fields, then opportunities are tremendous. Now, I believe that mental health or mental wellness will be just as big or popular as physical health. Mm -hmm. Just like how Americans have transformed from not being very careful with what they eat and how they treat their bodies to today where people are crazy about, you know, farm to table restaurants or, you know, organic 
brands in everything they buy. And there's a real health conscious, physical health conscious revolution in the United States. Same thing, mental health will be as normalized as physical health. So one day, maybe not next year, maybe not next two years, but in the next five to 10 years, people will be exercising, will be improving and practicing to become mentally, emotionally healthy and stay healthy, just like they do practice to maintain their physical health. So that's stigma that I want to kind of address, which is also why I believe now is a good time to really start innovating in emotional and mental well-being. The second one is, is using technology to scale the impact of experts. So we talk about the demand for mental health treatment, you know, 50 to 60 million Americans that are, that are, that experience some kind of mental illness. Now let's look at the supply side. In the United States, there are anywhere between 150,000 to 200,000 clinicians who can do what Karen does. So it doesn't take an Einstein to figure out the math. You got 50 million people in demand of some kind of mental health help. And you got 150,000 people who can help. There's no freaking way that we can solve this social pandemic of mental health crisis by continuing to rely on the one-on-one model, which is of course very important and it will continue to serve a very important role but we got to boldly innovate. And the only way to, at least in our view, the only way to increase the impact of what Karen does to affect more people is to tap into technology. So that makes sense to me. I want, I often forget that there's a stigma around mental health. Having spent the last three years on the West side of Los Angeles, I feel like you can't go to a party without someone talking to you about their therapist. But, um, <laughs> but no, I'm just kidding. I, I know that, I know that it's there. Um, and in particular, it affects different communities differently. Right. And I think we're starting to see like amongst, you know, black men, for example, a lot of, um, strong leaders in that community come out and, and discuss kind of men, it's okay not to feel okay. I think Kid Cudi was one of the first who really kind of started pushing that um, as, as an artist in that yeah. community. That's awesome. Um, you know, Paul, one of the things I wanted, I bookmarked was thinking about kind of your upbringing, um, you know, as, as I believe your parents immigrated to the United States from China mm-hmm. while you were young. And, you know, Chinese families and the stigma potentially around that. And me oh. coming from a Jewish family. <laughs> where Dude, they're the worst, it's... man. Chinese families are the worst. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Carry on, please. No, I was going to say, and then we always used to wax about like your, you know, your, your faith, right? And where you came from and my faith and where I came from. And we go back and forth. And one thing about, about Jewish culture is I think, um, you know, we, there's plenty of people that are therapists and, and see therapists but it's often treated as like a sarcastic joke. And so it's like, it's, it's brushed over as a joke to not be okay. Right. Um, and in that way, it's not acceptable. So there's, um, there's different stigmas around this uh, by culture. I don't know if you guys, if either of you, Karen or Paul want to touch about kind of what you see across cultures um, and where kind of the greatest need is right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That might be a hot button item in today's world but just the well 
Yeah, uh, various cultures have varying degrees of acceptance or understanding of what, how, well, first of all, how the brain works and, and what is mental health. Is it actually a thing? I have a controversial hypothesis, not in terms of culture, but in terms of perhaps the scientific grounding of it. The level of brain science understanding is positively correlated to the society's acceptance of mental health. So, you know, one of my co-founders, co Dr. David Carrion, psychiatrist from Stanford, um, educated me how, you know, when I'm depressed, like my brain actually undergoes a physiological process. So I'm not just making it up, you know, when I'm depressed, that there's, you know, some, something's off. And, and I think, you know, in the United States, it's not surprising that, you know, even though, to your point, uh, a lot of, I guess, quite a few regions in the United States continue to kind of treat mental health as this hush-hush topic. But as you also pointed out, Mark, in, you know, places like Bay Area, LA, perhaps certain parts of New York, people are becoming more open. And, and I, my, my hypothesis is that as we come to know the science behind how the brain works, people will realize, hey, come on, you know, when someone's depressed, you know, he, he's not just making it up. You know, it's actually a real thing. So like, just like you would not shame someone for getting cancer, I mean, right? Yeah. Or, or having broken like a leg, like you should not shame someone for being depressed. Yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, I want to, I want to dig into that a little bit because, um, that kind of physiological, you know, the phys physiological elements play a role in this. Um, but also just kind of to push back on that, like then would the response simply be kind of medication, right? If, if it was purely phys physiological and I agree it, it helps, um, it helps frame it for people. Cause we have this like rise of the biohacking movement and then we have the rise of productivity and I see mental health being kind of drawn into like a subsector of both of these. And I also question internally whether or not that's, that's going to lead to kind of like a solution that is, that is furthering the problem, if that makes sense, because it's kind of like still the same lenses that we're looking at, at those two things from, but now we're looking at mental health in, in, in that area. And I find I'm rambling a bit, but I find that mental health, for productivity um, is a great entry point in the same way that yoga for flexibility, physical flexibility is a great entry point. Um, so yeah, so I wanted to touch on that. Like if it's purely physiological, then why not just give everybody Lexapro, put it in the water and call it a day? So Karen will have much better answer to this. I, I guess uh, I apologize. I, I... I use that term physiological loosely. What I mean by that is really that, you know, when That's someone- That's water in my eyes, sorry. <laughs> oh, no worries. You know, when someone is, is experiencing clinical depression or anxiety, um, it's not something that this person just made up, which is the basis for mm. why society shames people that are depressed or anxious. I think that's what I'm speaking against. Mm. And, and, and if I, let me just give you an example. One of the common misconceptions is that you know depressed people are lazy? Well, if you mm. just look at the facts, um, 
you might think there's some truth to it because a lot of you know people who are depressed usually don't get up until noon, one, two p.m. But the problem is, lacking motivation is a symptom of depression, not a choice that a depressed person makes. So I think you know just some basic science understanding would really help us reduce the stigma. Because、uh, you know, next time when one of your family members is really having a hard time getting up, and you know that you know it's it's a real effort, and this person still got up at eleven, like we should be cheering him, like, hey, you know, good job, instead of saying, hey, why are you so lazy? You know, get your act together or snap out of it, right? So what is that like? Where does that come from? That that.、Uh... Why can't they? Well, one,、uh, we can go back to the med- med- medicinal kind of treatment, but also just like I, I find this like mentality of you know pick yourself up by your by your belt belt strap and like get up and go get him, tiger, and you know rah rah motivation. Like why don't you just you just turn it around, just work out, you know, just you're you're feeling depressed, just go exercise, or you got to eat better, or whatever. And that seems to be. How many people react to someone that's struggling with depression? Like, what do we say to those people? How do we kind of help them understand that's not necessarily the right approach to treat someone that's struggling? I think the the key word there、uh, is how do we help them understand? Right, her words、um, mm-hmm. is it's、uh, it's empathy, right? It's it's you know when they when they want. When they're trying to kick the other person into action,、um, it can come from、uh, a variety of, of emotions on their part,、uh, not just impatience, but discomfort, you know,、um, feeling awkwardness, even like a helplessness、uh, in wanting to help or save the other person, and it's hard to sit there with somebody in pain.、Mm-hmm. So. You're just trying to kick them into action so that they can, you know, look better, feel better, but also put you out of your misery too. Because what are you going? What are you going to do? You're going to sit there and feel pain with them, and that's too painful for you, you know. So we do do it out of a place of care,、um, but then also for our own well-being.、Um, so,、uh, so I mean, that's a huge question. That's a question that、um, Flourish is is addressing. You know, it's 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 one of the Flourish's mainstays,、um, <clears throat> hence the huge smile on Paul's face right now. <laughs>、um, but also to to go back to.、Um... All right, hello, look up listeners. One final note before we go. Thank you again for tuning in. Going forward, we'll be releasing new episodes of Look Up every Wednesday morning Eastern Time. If you're getting value from this podcast and you want to give back to support our future, please take a moment to contribute to our community on Patreon. Our Patreon contributors have access to some great additional perks, including one-on-one meditations with yours truly. I've shared the link in the show notes below the episode. You can also find the show notes to this and previous episodes on our website, www.thelookuppodcast.com. If you can't contribute at this time, there are other helpful ways to give back. You can share this episode on social media, tag me, and/or leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Trust me, every review goes a long way. If you want more content, including more of my personal thoughts, you can follow me on social media 
My handle on both Instagram and Twitter is at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N. Or you can subscribe to the Look Up Weekly newsletter on my website. I'm also very responsive to email, so feel free to send questions, booking inquiries, speaking requests, and sponsorship opportunities to marc at thelookuppodcast.com. Finally, for those of you that don't know, I lead virtual yoga, breathwork, and meditation classes, as well as one-on-one coaching and teaching sessions, which you can book from the website or my social media accounts. Thank you to Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the great intro and outro tunes and for the sound engineering. Thank you, brother. And thank you to all of you listeners for continuing to support the show, for tuning in, and I hope that you've been enjoying this journey as much as I have. <laughs>